Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. This time out, it's stage number two of Jerry Major. I'm your host, Andy Austin, and yeah, we had a heater in stage one. But stage two, full of truth bombs. Bob Bear eventually built what is known now as New Hampshire Motor Speedway, obviously in Loudoun, New Hampshire, but it was actually supposed to be in Maine. What held it back? Jerry has the answer. Before any of that happened, though, You may have heard that the Grateful Dead and the Scorpions with Van Halen. Who else was on that bill? Was it Crocus? No. Kingdom Come and I think even Metallica were at the Oxford Plain Speedway to play concerts. Two weekends in a row. It didn't go well. And who helped shut it down? That's right. Those stories and more in stage number two. And thank you so much for the support of Open Trailer Podcast. This is a product of Maine Vintage Race Car Association. You can become a member for less than $2 a month. Subscribe to us at mainvintagerace.org. We also have family memberships available. You can also support this podcast, and thank you so much for your contribution. If you become a member of the Patreon Army, then we'll send you an Open Trailer Podcast sticker. Thanks to your contributions, we've been able to get a whole run of those. And big shout to the Graphics Coop. It's patreon.com slash opentrailerpodcast. That's patreon.com slash open trailer podcast. Just like the last time out, Jerry has a ton to say. So let's do it. Stage two of Jerry Major on Open Trailer Podcast. Jerry, we talked about your pit stewardness. We talked about your driving days. Talked about you growing up. How do you end up a flagman? Good question. I, I, you know, I don't know how that came. Oh, I was in Stephen Harvey at the Oxford Speedway one day. I stopped in to talk to Harvey Moynihan, who was who was running the track. Hmm. And he says, "Hey, we're looking for a flagman." He says, "You know anybody?" I raised my hand. He said, would you flag? He said, damn right. I said, I've always wanted to. I flagged a couple races way back when I was pit steward just for the hell of it. Was this before they had the flag stand they have now? Or, or, no, this, when I flagged, in, I flagged a few from the infield. Okay. Which was, was a precarious place to do it. Yeah. And, and uh, but when I flagged, I was up in the stand to stand now. Okay. Yeah, and I ran back down this, I mean, I, I was up and down that, thing onto the track i was in good shape back then and and helped make a show out of it i've been wanted to one of your uh, family reunions a number of years ago and i've seen some old pictures of you and i mean you know you talk about how you were in the tannery and i said well that's probably where you got your muscles because i mean you were ripped back back then and you said no i worked in the front office all the time did you have some sort of mega workout routine or like you almost like you had the keto diet before it was the keto diet i just never stopped i'm right. i'm i'm type a person and and i i worked so many sucking jobs and stuff mm. that you know, like I said, the plumbing, uh, I did plumbing and heating and, and roofing and siding and painting. And I did all this stuff all my life, always have, still do. And you ate healthy. 
right? Did you I help? would not say that. No, but you, no. But you sure as hell look like it. <laughs> yep. So anyway, you end up flagging. You're running up and down the stands, which is a performance in its own right. I don't think uh, the flagmen uh, get the credit that they they really should get, like a guy like Eddie Walsh, a guy like oh, yourself, exactly. or John Hulbert. Um, you but know. the 250 that year was was a little different. I mean, I dressed up. I got my red sports coat and everything. I mm-hmm. went down on the track and interviewed all the drivers for introductions. Went back up, hung my flag stand on the side of the flag stand, my coat, flagged the race after I threw the checkered, tightened tie up, put on the coat, went back down into victory lane, interviewed everybody. When when the proceedings are done at the track, I went up in the I went up and organized a press conference too, you know, and so. So and then you had to go to work on Monday. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you worked an eighteen-hour day on your day off. Oh, some of them two fifty weekends was, uh, were killers. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were really killers. And but you know, it didn't bother me Monday and Tuesday. Wednesday I would crash. Yeah. I went worth a dang on Wednesday after after a two fifty weekend every year. It just gone. So the 250 at this point, we're talking late 80s, early 90s, NASCAR is involved. Guys who are winning this race are winning $50,000 and the crowds are full. True Value's getting involved. Oh. Where did you feel the limit? Did you feel that there was going to be a ceiling or a limit to the 250? Not really, I guess. Uh, you know, it was just it was it was just so, uh, unbelievable for me. It was it was routine. it was part of my day. It was my job. I mean, and I'm expected to do this. I'm going to do it. But I got to tell you, True Value was the perfect sponsor and a fantastic sponsor for years. And even after uh, Bill Ryan bought the track, Wayne insisted that I come back and do the interviews because I knew how to say True Value, mm. <laughs> you know, and stuff. But it was great. I'll tell you another great thing happened one time in 92. Walker lined up this interview with Mike Greenwell and we're going to the Red Sox Fenway Park to do a commercial for the 250 with the pace car out in front of the Green Monster. Well, we get down there and and Mike Liberty and myself and Bobby and it's foggy and one thing or another and the groundskeeper comes out he says, let me tell you, you can do all the interviews you want from the Green Monster but you aren't taking that car on on that field. And so I got some great pictures of Mike Greenwell stuff. And then when Mike came up to the 250, they raced the night before. He had both night days off, and he shows up on Sunday. And and uh, I took him around the golf cart. We went over the, across the street and raced go uh, go karts and stuff. Uh, what a great guy! And I stayed in touch with him until he left the Red Sox. I would love to see him again. Mm. But anyway, that was another perk, if you will. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, in 1987, Oxford changes quite a bit. Um, Bob Bear gets out, sells it to Mike Liberty. Does anybody know Mike at this point? Like, who's this this new guy comes on the scene? Well, we've been seeing him hanging around for two or three years. and But he's still a young man. Hmm. And you talk about aggressive and all this and that. I mean, it was unbelievable. Was he a race fan? I guess so. I or mean, did he just look at it and see the money that I you guys are bringing? I think he saw out? the money. Yeah, yeah. He turned into a race fan, and you know, when in '87 and uh, again in '92, I think it was. You know, Brian France used to come up 
uh, Bill Francis' grandson, mm-hmm. and and hang with us. And he and Mike Libby would play basketball. Every time you turn around, they're playing basketball. So I got two or three pictures of, with Brian. Got to be pretty good friends with him too. But I think Mike did see the money. You know, Bob <laughs> Bob probably oversold him the fact. You know, I will not discuss the number that he sold it for, but mm-hmm. Bob told me verbatim one day, and then they denied it later. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But anyway. Uh, what was your first impression of Mike Liberty? But here's a young guy full of piss and vinegar ready to take us to the next level. Is there a next level above the 250? This is the next level above everything. Yeah, you didn't know at the time. No. And and so I, I think we're going to do bigger and better things. I didn't think they were going to be concerts. <laughs> wow. But we had the Grateful Dead and the and the Monsters of Rock. Monsters of Rock, two weekends in a row, really disrupted our town. Yeah. Can but you anyway, tell me about those days? Were you how how big of a part of that were you? I I was part of the crowd that helped shut him down. It had to believe. You we, shut down the Grateful Dead. Uh, I think I can tell the story now. Sure. Five four businessmen put up a thousand dollars apiece to hire a lawyer to find a way to shut this down there was a business almost across the track and they asked me to get involved in it and i know deep down in my heart i always did that bob was behind this but that may or may not be that's not a fact folks right no it's just it's it's my thing it's i tried to find a lawyer that we could work with to find a way to shut these down. But didn't you work for the Speedway? I wasn't working for him then. Okay. I so, was in, still involved with it. I was the multiple sclerosis drive and everything. And we couldn't find a lawyer. And next thing I know, uh, the word gets back through, and I won't go into how that happened, but we got the name of a lawyer down in Lewis and Auburn. All these lawyers work for Mike Liberty. I mean, he had a list of lawyers longer than your arm. So anyway, we find one, and we find out we can't shut them down, but we can control them. And during all this, we're having meetings in, at, in the town, and the people says, we want you on the committee. And they knew I'd work for Mate Liberty, you know. And so I'm up there one night for the multiple sclerosis, no, MDA fundraiser. Muscular got, dystrophy. Yeah. Hmm. We're, we're, we're going to pass the helmets through the stands and raise a lot of money for them, you know, like we do every year. And and so I'm in my coat and tie. I do it formal. And it bugs me today that they don't dress up for the 250, but that's another story. Mm. <laughs> but anyway, and my wife is with me. We're sitting in the grandstands, and Mike comes down. Jerry, we got to do something about these concerts. How can we do this? I said, Mike, you've got to start having a a Christian concert and some small country concerts and then work it back up and we'll change the laws again. If they won't do it. I say, you do it right and we will, I'll see to it that it's done right because I was selectman back in town for three or four years, ten years before that. Hmm. And he kept coming down and then he finally comes down one time and he says, Jerry, this is about his fourth trip down to see me that night. <laughs> he had somebody with him every time so he'd have a witness to what I would say. Hmm. But I was as smart as he was in that respect. I didn't say anything out of line. He says, he pounded his finger on the on the counter, and he says, Roger may be the chairman, but they're listening to you. 
right. I says, oh, that makes me feel good, but you still got to talk to Roger. Yeah. And that's when he came to the town meeting, town office one night, and told him to seek his seat 25000 I says, now I know that's not true, because a friend of mine, who remained nameless, told me to go count the seats. And I snuck in there one day, and I counted them. And you take out for the walkways, and you got 10,000, 1,500, and 5,000. So don't tell us you can seat 20 or 25,000. Well, that, Is that where those inflated numbers came from? That's where they came from. And I think they still, the current ownership, I'm, Wouldn't I, surprise me. I can't say that they don't abide by that, but I think I've seen something that reinforces that opinion. Yep. All anybody wants to do is, is you can, if you really want to know, you can find a way to sneak in and count them yourself. No, we're not going to advocate breaking and entering, Jerry. We're just going to <laughs> say, listen to the podcast. That's all. <laughs> uh, so you end up, uh, you say you're not working directly for the racetrack in 87, 88. Um, one sub question when you talk about dressing up for the 250, where did the, I think your iconic look is that hat and the red blazer. Where did that get up come from? Oh, for me, really? I, you know, I when he started having me do that stuff, you know, it, this is a bit. This is supposedly the richest shot track race in America, mm-hmm. one day event. Let's make it nice, and you know, I when even when I was doing pit steward, some of that stuff. I most always wore the same pants, but then I, then I'd change shirts and put the tie on and stuff and do that. And I wish. How many shirts would you go through during a during a day? One of those eighteen hour days. Oh, it's a racetrack. You're wearing what? Yeah, no, I just wear the same one all day. Okay, just be soaked in sweat or whatever it took, you know. Yeah. And and you know you get done flagging that race, and then to put that sport coat on in the 78, 75, 80 degrees, hmm. I was I was. You didn't want to cuddle me afterwards. People forget that the Oxford 250 was uh, not at the end of August as it is now. I mean, yeah, it was exactly. a it was a midsummer thing, and it was until fairly recently. Uh, but you end up you end up running the show for a year or so in the early '90s. How does this whole thing come about when you ran Oxford Plain Speedway? Well, in '91, when I flagged the last meet, the last uh, race of the season, we go over in the drag strip grandstands to have a meeting with all the drivers, anybody, the crew, the pits. Mm. And I'm walking back with Mike Liberty and Javi Moynihan, who was the president, Javi getting done. And Mike says to me, he says, Jerry, what the hell have I got to do with this track? He says, we got to do something. I says, Mike, you, and he had a few of his relatives working there. I says, you've got to get rid of these people that aren't racist and hire somebody like me to run it that knows racing. Hmm. He said, would you work for me? I said, if you want to pay me, I will. I'd be interested. And then later on that week, we talked, and we agreed on it and uh, on a salary, which was suitable for both of us. And, hmm. You and said Liberty? This was Liberty or somebody else? No, Mike Liberty. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Went, went right down to his office and talked to him in Portland. And You made I, a deal with Mike Liberty yeah, yeah. and didn't go to jail? No. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. that's excellent. So it goes well uh, for you, but it isn't exactly what you, what you had planned out in your mind. It was the best and worst job I ever had in my life. 
the best job because I absolutely love racing. I got to spend two weeks in Daytona going to every function you can imagine. I got to meet uh, Joe Gibbs and, and sat at a dinner with Bobby and Judy Allison and, and the Walters, mother and father. And, and I got to meet Ricky Skaggs and Darrell Walter at that time and, 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 and go to all these meetings for track owners from around the country to learn how to do different things. Mm. And, and then I come back and we haven't got no money to initiate doing anything. So, you know, Mike Liberty is known for, well, a lot of things. But, I mean, he at the time, he's, he's the money guy. He's the one who's going to take Oxford to the next level. So you imagine when you take that job, you're going to have a massive budget to work with and you're going to be able to ramp things up, which, you know, with your prowess, that's going to happen. But without money, nothing happens. Oh, I, I, I'm not going to give you details because I'm – don't need a lawsuit on my head mm. but I absolutely had virtual dollars very very limited dollars to to do any promotions like we had learned down there mm. but an interesting thing that happened at Daytona Red McDonald from Lee Speedway and his flagman I think it was Bobby something or other and Mike Libby and I we go we go get some sandwiches or something. We're sitting around the picnic table one day, just the four of us. And Red's trying to convince Mike, you need to make that a three-quarter, a half-mile high-bank racetrack. You ain't going to change your grandstands. It can be like Martinsville only put high banks in the turns because there's mm. room enough to do it. You really think that would be a good idea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's going good. Well, how would we do this? He says, you could do this for $100,000. And Mike said, how the hell would you do that? And he said, well, I got all the equipment. We'll bring my equipment up. Well, well how are you going to fit in? Well, I, I want to be part of the track or hmm. something like that. I this. want a piece of it. And and then the deal was shut down right there. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. But, I mean, I was getting excited to think of a half-mile high-bank track right here in Oxford, you know. So, but that didn't happen hey i have a question uh based on that so as a child i had heard this wild rumor and i mean today i mean if i were like the age i was today i would have been closer to the situation but i remember hearing in the late 80s bob bear before he built new hampshire motor speedway in new hampshire he wanted to build that in oxford and it was going to be a mile and a quarter oval is that true that he wanted to build a super speedway in oxford he he did I do not know the exact length he wanted to build it. Mm. And the biggest reason he didn't, the state told him he had to build a, had to have a four-lane highway from Gray to the track. I thought it was a 26 issue. Which is, which is 21 miles, 22 miles, 22 mm. miles, because I lived 21 miles, track was a mile, mm. and, and one thing or another. But let me tell you, there's no way in hell that track should ever have come to Oxford. There isn't room there. Look how many acres of parking they got over there. Where, where would you have parked all the cars if you put a mile, mile track at Oxford? Right. We, we haven't got fields and stuff. Not even land you can clear. It's not like you can even move a pond like they did at New Hampshire where you know there was a exactly. pond in the infield. And they're like, well, we can just build another pond across the street. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And you just, you know, knowing Bob, he'd have found a way to do it. But right. supposedly that was the, the, the kicker that, killed it was this four-lane highway from gray on up and the traffic would have been horrible oh we, my goodness before they fixed 26 well 20 look, years ago oh you could look it's 87 at the at the uh 
the two rock concerts. I mean, yeah, it was just the biggest horror. A hundred thousand, two weekends in a row. You know, and he's putting a hundred thousand over New Hampshire, running lots. The first one was not too smooth. I can tell you that because I was there. Many of our uh, many of the people who will listen to this podcast don't even remember when that happened. They weren't alive. They weren't thought of. Uh, you know, it's not their fault. They weren't around back then. But Route Twenty Six back in that day, they oh. they probably haven't even experienced Twenty Six widening out like you know they have like they did twenty twenty five. It's been a long time now, probably like twenty years ago. But I mean, it was just a two lane highway without any shoulders. Very crooked. Yeah, and it was. I think I don't know what what eventually made that happen. Poland Spring. No, uh, 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 some local politicians and and the Chamber of Commerce and stuff. Back then, uh, the leader of the Chamber of Commerce, I think it was John John Williams. Williams. Back then, too, yeah. his license plate said fixed 26, and we had fixed 26 plates, uh, stickers on everybody's cars. That's like a hashtag before a hashtag, fixed 26. Yeah. Yeah. Right? But, but uh, 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 a group of local people, it had nothing to do with Poland Springs back then, uh, no. to my knowledge. And and just people said, it's time. You know, you, you got Mount Abram, you got Sunday River skiing, and in the summertime, you get all the Canadians coming down to Old Orchard back in them days. I mm-hmm. mean, 26 was a busy, busy, busy place, especially in our area, because... Yeah. It's just where it was. There are parts of gray, like basically when when you get into gray, um, where it's just two lanes. That was what twenty six was like all the way straight up through Oxford. Absolutely, and it was uh, it was a disaster. Anyway, Jerry, um, what eventually led to you not running Oxford Plains anymore? I'm not a hundred percent sure. I was just it was getting so I was a glorified babysitter. And after the two fifty, uh, one thing led to another and and all at once one Friday afternoon I get a letter in the mail that says we do not need your services anymore. Wait a minute. On a did they just send it to you in the mail during race season? In on a Friday in wow. the middle of the season. Now mind you the program Walker wrote on Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday and it went to print on Thursday. I got fired on Friday, the program came out on Saturday, my name was already out of it. <laughs> really? Yeah, so the internal people all but Jerry knew that I was already gone. And Walker being Bob Walker. Yes. What was he like to work with? No comment. No. Just yeah, tough situation all around. He was a th- he was a thorn in my side most of the years. I I can't say I didn't like Bobby. I did like Bobby. And Bobby Walker, if if Bobby Walker had had his crap together back in the days, he could have been with Ken Squire on TV. Ken liked him a lot, and Bobby was a, a, a super announcer. Mm-hmm. You can't take that away from him. He's one of the best I've he's heard. He's like yourself. He, he remembered everything, and he, he could tell you what guys had for breakfast. But he also won the guys up there, you know, how to— how to tell when Bobby Walker's lying? His lips are moving. <laughs> I mean, he just told so many stories that weren't real, and and that's one of them was a disaster in the pits. We will not go into it, but I I went up stood, standing up for him, and and Bob Bear liked to kill me, hmm. and and come to find out it was his fault. But anyway, that sometimes it's hard when you're a, an actor and you. I'm not defending anything, because I don't know any of the situation you're talking, but I can only speak to. It's hard to separate the character from the individual sometimes, hmm. and sometimes you can get caught up within your own cult of personality, and if people if your being is based on people believing what you say then sometimes you can kind of 
believe in your own BS enough for someone to say, well, I can say whatever and people are going to believe that. And that with the wrong personality will spiral out of control, which sometimes happens. Might have happened with them. Oh, this this was a disaster weekend, which we will, we, we will not go into that. So Bob Bear ends up building a New Hampshire Motor Speedway. It opens in 1990. Um, do you ever in, get involved with that facility at all, or is that too far from your home? I did not. And, and interestingly, I'm not sure why, because hmm. I kind of had hoped that he'd find something for me to do, although I knew it wasn't a good fit being that far, it's two and a half hours hmm. on back roads. Only 110 miles, but it takes two and two and a half hours to get there. So, Jerry, you, you're a guy who's been in Maine pretty much all your life. Can you explain to me the hardship of the fact that we do not have any east-west roads in Maine to speak of? It's just, it, it's 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 wrong. Yes, I mean I travel. I claim to have traveled more roads in the state of Maine than anybody alive in all my 33 years. I mean, I traveled Maine 20 years selling industrial supplies and 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 in the county everywhere. And it, oh, it's such a problem going east-west. Still is. Yeah. Route if, 2 if, is all we got, and that ain't a good road. For those people who are listening out of the state of Maine, you're like, no, they, there's there has to be roads from east to west. No, look at a map. They're all north to south with the exception of a couple. And yep. it's always blown my mind, but I figured maybe you might have uh, something to say on that, uh, or maybe you'd have an, uh, a reason why, because you've had the experience. But no, you can't even figure it out. The best roads uh, east-west. Uh, snowmobile trails, <laughs> <laughs> which through leads the, with through the woods where we got a lot of straight ones. Which leads into uh, you know the next part of your life. I mean, you've had <laughs> so many different parts, but you've been involved with the Maine Snowmobile Association for how long? Over fifty years, just like I was in racing. And what have you? What what um, what roles have you served in that organization? I served as a, as a director from our club to the MSA for years. Uh, I ran, I pretty much organized the Super Raffle. Which is? Which is we give away snowmobiles and 60 or 70 prizes every year. And and we took it from a little of nothing up to a great big thing. And this year was tremendous. Mm. We had we sold 84,000 tickets this year, which was like 20,000 more we've ever sold. But And then I was on the trails committee, and I was trail inspector boss for Oxford and Franklin County for 10 years and I inspected like 100 miles of trail myself and which I'm back in as an inspector again this year. Is that, um, does that go for like checking bridges to make sure they're sound? Well, mostly uh, bridges, yes, we are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, should this bridge have railings on it, we're checking signage to make sure the, uh, the intersections and the, and the curves are properly marked and no brush in the trail so they ain't getting slapped in the head by brush and stuff like this. Are, the, are they grooming enough? You know, because we're all volunteer clubs, but we do get reimbursed for our equipment, and and the guys go out and run these tuckers and stuff. What is the best snowmobile trail in Maine to Ooh. ride? Ooh, don't go there. Why not? We got fourteen thousand miles of trail in Maine. Fourteen thousand miles. I w- I would say up around Caribou to Fort Kent. Okay. So, oh, so absolutely. 
tremendous trails. Hey, so um, when people scroll Open Trailer Podcast and they see your name and they see that you're on, uh, a lot of them will know you from two things. Thursday Thunder at Beechridge Motor Speedway and also Day of Destruction, which you recently retired from. How long were you involved with Day of Destruction? And nobody, nobody seems to remember when it started. Andy, Andy, and the Cusacks don't remember when it started. Mm. I think it was like twenty six years, but I don't know that. I think it's pretty close. Day of destruction went what twenty three? Mm. I mean, uh, uh, Thursday Thunder. Thunder went twenty three. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And over those twenty three years, I missed two nights. And day of destruction, I think went twenty five or twenty six, and I missed one of them. Now it isn't as a traditional race announcer and I'll call myself that even though I, I never really put myself in that category um, I had a, I had a, I would have a hard time calling those day of destructions you can A call a race and B call a day of destruction what is the difference between the two for you humor hmm. humor uh, calling a regular race I mean you you gotta be as you know real well you gotta be on all the time you gotta be looking at that all corners that track at all the same time. You got to see the guy that's that, that that's going too wide over in turn two, but the, whoops, there's a crash in turn four. The opposite end of the track. I mean, it's you. You just don't have time to relax. Mm-hmm. It, uh, is my first terminology, and it took me a while in '89 when I first did that. It, for Ralph. Oh, was that your first time race announcing in a traditional sense? Yes. When you filled in, I believe Andy Cusack was the announcer at the time, and then you came in for a for a year or One so. One year. Yeah. And I would have stayed longer, except races were not as organized back in 89 as they are nowadays. We'd go till 12, 11, 12, 1 o'clock at night if things dragged on. Mm. You know, they don't drag on like that anymore. Number one, the car counts down, but we had more cars than one thing or another. And you started at 7.30. Yeah, but to to get home, you know, I I live a little over an hour away, and, and... and I loved it to death down there working with Ralph and, and Jane and Andy and Glenn and stuff. But it just was too much. You yeah. know, They wanted me to go up to Riverside up in uh, Groveton, Groveton yeah. and announce Marvin bugged me. And I said, Marvin, it's, it's, it's just too much. It's too far. Yeah. You know, I have gone up and, and guest announced once or twice, and I've done it at White Mountain and Lee and Star and stuff. But What's the most excited that you've ever been about one race? Probably the Oxford 250 1987 when I got – it was my show that year. Mm. It was really my show. Maybe not, though. Maybe 91, in hindsight, when I was a flagman and I did all the interviewing before and after the race, you know, take that sport coat off and then go put it back on and go back and talk to these guys. And and that's stuff. when Craven won. And Ricky Craven won. Yeah. And then another little story, Ricky Craven, oh, 10 years later – wants to be in the snowmobile business. He's, and I'm a good friend of the Don LaRoche, the Atticat dealer, and Ricky's talking to Don about starting a, a, a dealership. And well, who should we get to? Well, you know Jerry Major. You know Jerry. I got a call from both of them one day. Now <laughs> I'm really excited yeah. that I may get a chance to go run an Atticat dealership snowmobile, which is my second love, and for Ricky Craven, who's a great kid. And one thing leads to another, and he can't. He, nobody will sell him a dealership. 
and I go in to see Bob Bear one day for something. Bob says, how you doing with that Rick Craven deal? I said, what Craven deal is that? The snow wheel thing. I said, how the hell do you know about that? I mean, we was keeping that so hush, it was unbelievable. And, he, well, he wanted to buy some land from him up in Guilford. Hello? Now, wait a minute. Now I got to go talk to my wife. Hmm. Guilford, New Hampshire. No, Guilford, Maine. Oh, okay. Yeah, Dover, Foxcroft, yep. Guilford area. And and I says, you know, I can't commute there. We're not going to move. This doesn't work. So I went to the New Hampshire a few weeks later, and here's Ricky. And I says, Ricky, we need to talk. He says, okay, after after warm-ups. So I talked to him, and I says, I'm, I, I'm not your man. I can't. I can't move, and I'm not, and it's too far to commute everywhere you're talking. So you need to take me off that list. Ooh, he was not a happy camper. Mm-hmm. He hardly talked to me for two years before we became friends again. Wow. He, what, what what broke the ice again? Oh, I don't know. We just yeah just went to him and said, hey, you know, it just it just evolved. That's all. Yeah. Because yeah. Ricky's a great kid. Yeah. And Did you know that he would be the star that he became? Back in '91, when he was uh, running the speedy car and winning the Oxford 250, I absolutely did expect it to happen. Absolutely did, and I guess it, I I know it was '91 or '92. I needed to talk to Ricky about something as an official or the general manager. I don't remember which, but I goes over to his hauler, and there's a guy standing outside. He says they're having a meeting and they're not allowed in there. I said, but I need to talk to him. He says in 45 minutes or whatever, they would, you know, I'm the boss here. What the yeah, hell? Yeah, Let yeah, me in there. Yeah. No, sir. They were very serious, and that's. I think that was the year he went out and won it. But that's how dedicated they were. I mean, Ricky was all full steam ahead hmm. and and very gentlemanly, and they, they just did it right, did it right. So uh, anybody who's looked at your Facebook page over the last, oh, I don't know, a couple of years or so, I mean, knows that, I mean, you know where the bodies are buried. You know everybody and it comes to racing in in Maine and those NASCAR stars who came up in the 80s, uh, some of the people that made an impression on you, like a Jeff Gordon or a Tommy Houston, anybody that jumps out at you like you're like, that guy is super. Bobby Allison. Hmm. Bobby Allison in... in and I, probably because he won the first race at Oxford, I guess. Mm. But Bobby was the type of guy that raced everywhere. I can remember standing in the infield at B Trade for Ralph Cusack, and Bobby Allison's coming up to race. And so, when's he getting there? Well, he's going to fly over the track and let us know, and then we're going over to the airport and pick him up. Oh. It went too long of that. Yeah. Here comes a plane upside down over the racetrack. I was going to ask you about that. Very yeah. low. He says, there's Bobby. Yep. I mean, he's right upside down. And Bobby says, oh, I didn't do that. He said, I must have hit the throttle or something. He says, you know. <laughs> but anyway, and and then my wife my wife died in, in November of, of one year, and, and Bobby's wife died in December. And we used to sit together over the Bob Bear's booth over in New Hampshire and so that January, seven years ago, I guess it was, I, I went down on a trip by myself and I called Bobby. I said, we got something else in common besides both being at Oxford in 1966. Uh, mm. both, we both lost to Judy. Would you go to lunch with me? Well, I spent two, two and a half hours with him, with the, some of the best 
time I ever spent with anybody in my life. He took me to places and showed me stuff. Unbelievable. I still call him once in a while. Well, it's healing. I mean, you guys were there to heal each other. I see a picture of you and Tim Richmond. What were your memories of Timmy? His? <laughs> only, only one. We're in Atlanta one time, and I think it was the year that we introduced country time for Dick Bear's car. And and people may or may not remember that Dick Bear started racing with number 23. Yeah, the Hawaiian punch car. Right. Mm. And they changed it to number 30. Do you know why it was number 30? I don't. They was within within hours of clinching Domino's Pizza for their sponsor, 30-minute <sighs> delivery. And that's why that car number was changed. That's a little worthless trivia. No, that's not worthless at all. That yeah. is mind blowing. And when they and when we changed it to when they changed it to uh, to a country time, we went out to the mansion where Gone with the Wind was filmed and had a big party that night. That's where I got to meet the owner of the Atlanta Speedway that out there, and, and went out. There's a still out back, and I I met the owner of the, the racetrack and. Thanked her for letting me go up in one of the booths to watch the race. Oh, he was up there. Oh, oh! First, she says, "You look like you know somebody on that wall." Looking at them pictures, I said, "Yeah, well, that's Margaret Chase Smith from Maine." Oh, you're one of the Maine boys, yeah. And I says, "And you are?" She says, "I own the Speedway." And I said, "Well, I want to thank you then for letting us up in the booth to watch the race, and uh, today and." One of my friends, NASCAR officials, told me what to do and how to do it and be respectful. And she says, well, that's good. She says, maybe sometime you can watch the cop race up there. I says, how about tomorrow? She says, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so cute, cutesy. Wow. But anyway, uh, so after the race, we're all hanging around, raising hell. This is when all the drivers hung around with everybody. I mean, it was just like it. Oxford or Beatridge or whatever. Hmm. All the ones, there's Tim Rich in there, and he says, them SOBs. What's going on, Tim? He says, they told me if I didn't get going, they're going to take off and leave me. And he says, I guess they have. I don't see any of them. So he says, what hotel are you staying at? He told us, well, we're staying at the same one. We gave him a ride back to his hotel. Wow. little trivia thing, you know. Yeah. I got to meet a lot of guys that way, you know. Hmm. And and one of the cute things, uh, you know, I used to go to the races with Dick Bear a lot, and a lot, back before when he was just part-time in it. I mean, Michael Walthrop drove his first race for Dick in 1985 or 6. How did that deal come together? How did Waltrip end up driving for Bear? I don't know. Because he was Daytona Dash and not really proven. Well, he was winning, winning quite a few in the Dash, I think. Yeah, but, I mean, as far as, like, NASCAR. Right. I mean, NASCAR was a Dash series, but, I mean, just to jump to cup like that. Yeah, well, I think I think, uh, uh, I think think NASCAR put him together. I'm not sure, but I think mm. Bill Jr. may have made that marriage. I don't know the background on that, quite frankly. But I can remember Michael out there in practice getting into it with A.J. Foyt. He spun, and then I says, oh, this ought to be good. Michael's going to go over to talk to A.J. His A.J. comes in. I run over my camera, and I'm on the opposite side of the car, in the passenger side, and I took a picture of Michael leaning into the car to talk to A.J. to explain why he hit him. And they had no problem, and, and I see you holding the picture yeah, of the this two is the, of them together. AJ explaining to Michael which line to drive. Yeah, that's exactly. kind of what it looks like. Yeah, 
Yeah, but you know, we used to go to a lot of races, and, and we was at Richmond one time. Another cute little story. I call it cute anyway. Buster down in and his son Brad and and Bill Lynch and I goes down there, and we can't find the cars. Well, the, there's a building quite a ways away from the track, actually at the fairgrounds. And I says, Junior Johnson just went in that building. That's where they are. So we goes over, and we go in. And here's Dick Bear's car parked right between Bobby Allison and Richard Petty. I whoa, you know, to myself, this is pretty good. Pretty soon, the, you know, an hour or so later, the garage door opens, and a friend of mine from Vermont, Archie Blackadder, is helping uh, check tickets and stuff like that. Mm. And I'm not too finding out, hey, Jerry. Come here. So I goes over and he says, you guys got passes? I says, of course not, Archie. You know me better than that. He says, well, they're going to be checking passes pretty quick. You better look busy. Hmm. So I goes over and I grab four rags and I passed one to Buster and Bill and Brad. I said, come on, let's wa- wax this car. We're wa- <laughs> Nobody asks us for a pass. That's and amazing. then we helped push it from the garage to the track, which was a pretty good size distance. That's okay. Nobody checked us. Right. We go in. We have actual passes for Saturday. That was Friday. We have actual passes for Saturday. And Sunday, I said, we're going in again because the passes look almost like Saturdays. I've got this big tote bag, uh, duffel bag. I just put our coats in there because the weather was up and down. We get to the we get to the entrance. The same guy is there we've talked to a couple times already. And he says, have a good race today, Lake. He thought it was Lake Speed, and we walked right through again without passes. <laughs> nice. You kind of, yeah, I can see how at that time you yeah. and Lake Speed would look exactly yeah. alike. Yeah, it's no, so that's funny. Awesome. He says, have a great race, Lake. <laughs> so you're 81, you're busy as ever. Have you had a day off in the last 15 years? Not really. I mean, no. you know, I don't know. Sure. I, I I talk now like I'd like to get a job so I can have some time off. But you're busy every single day. We're recording this in Open Trailer Podcast World Headquarters, which uh, doesn't usually happen. I, I generally go on the road for these things. But you're down in this part of the state for a very specific reason every day. Yes, I, I have prostate cancer, so I'm going through a series of 30 days of radiation, five days a week for six weeks, and everything's going very fine, thankfully, and I expect a full recovery without any, without any problems. How much have you had to lean on your faith for this? A lot, but my, my faith is taken, I guess my faith is really, I've not been worried about it at all. And I was diagnosed in September. I mean, I'm not worried about it taking me down or anything. Mm. And and you know, I've since remarried seven years ago. We been, well, five February tenth, we'll be married five years. I married a beautiful lady from Norway, and and uh, we wound up moving to her house, by the way, because the snowmobiling <laughs> is better in Norway than it is from Oxford. Yes, and I so, bought a tractor and have rebuilt her yard like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Jerry, uh, one more thing to hit on. We kind of talked about it just a little bit with, uh, you know, with your faith and uh, carrying you through this this episode of your life. Uh, how much has that been a part of your life? Well, I I was brought up Catholic, hmm. and and. Uh, I'm now a Congregationalist, and one thing not, I've been involved in churches all my life. My parents trained me real well, big family. We went to church and, and did that, and I've been very involved in in the South Parish Congo Church since 84, and I've got into work, working and serving on Men's Trace Dears Weekend, which is a three-day Christian weekend, and I served on one this fall, and that was my 17th one. I made my weekend in 89. Mm. And so 
uh, Christianity is a big part of mine. I organize and still run a men's group on once a month on Saturday mornings. You guys have pancakes? Sometimes. Yeah, good. Sometimes, yeah. Bacon. Yeah. We had a lot of quiche just last time. Ooh, with, quiche. With, with special breads and, and muffins. Did and you that. eat on the good side of town that day? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jerry, Jerry, you have a piece of paper in front of you. Is there something that you wanted to say? Or? Well, I was just checking to see if there was any hot start stuff that I that I didn't remember. Oh. You know, I don't know if we talked about the – did we talk about the past tour? No, let's uh, let's do – let's hit on that because uh, I think you are a trailblazer when it comes to the Pro All-Star Series. You started that series up or helped start that series up with Tom Mayberry. Well, here's the ironic thing. The pro trucks had gone down. This Did you was, work with them? No. But when they went down, I uh, can't remember the guy's name. But Phil Rowe. Yeah. Tom Mayberry and and uh, Northern Tire. Oh, I know the guy that works for him, Roland. Roland, but the owner, Jack. Yeah, Jack, okay. Anyway, they want to resurrect the pro truck tour, and they call me and they want me to be the race director. And so we had three or four meetings over in New Hampshire at, at Jack's shop. And uh, there was 20-some-odd trucks available in this New England area. Do you know why that truck tour failed, the original one? Why? I don't know. Okay. But there was, there was only eight that would commit to doing it again. And so Tom and Jack says, to hell with it. Why don't you make coffee tables? All them trucks you guys don't want to commit to it. Let them sit in your yard. And they decided to start the Pro All-Stars Tour. Well, uh, Tom was going to be the director of that, and he asked me, would I be the announcer? So the first two years, I traveled the whole tour with him for two years, Canada and Connecticut, Massachusetts, or wherever we went, anywhere they went. For two years, I did all the announcing. What's your favorite track to announce? Uh, good question. I don't know. Uh, Fredericton. So you end up with a legend tour running that for a couple of years as well? Yeah, and that's when that's when the Thursday Thunder started. I'm running the, and Andy and I talked, and we brought the legends in there on Thursday night. And went, was you there at the beginning of the Thursday? Yes, yeah. I was there from the but, very day one. But I went up there, and I used to announce the legend car race and you did the rest of them as I recall because I everywhere every track we went through I'd get mm-hmm. them all organized and then we'd we'd I'd go announce the race and go back and the tech thing with the boys and get things going but I you know it's just it's just a lot you know and every chance I got mm-hmm. I'd take off and, and go with Dick Bear on on his with his NASCAR team before he got before he became Bahari, we sold out to Bahari and stuff. But yeah. we used to go. We had Beaver driving driving at Charlotte one time, and and Brett Bodine. We would go to Richmond one time. I think it was Richmond. Could have been Martinsville. But anyway, it snowed that weekend, and they did two days of qualifying, and you could stand on your time on Friday, or you could go back out. It was so weird. And we stood on our time because the weather got real. Sh- and when Brett Bodine was going to drive for us, and he's the guy that drove the pace car for NASCAR for years. Yeah. Very official. But anyway, we missed qualifying by .001. Oof. Missed the race by .001. That was so discouraging. But anyway, yeah. yeah and uh, But we, we just had some great times. Great times. 
I'm so glad we had a chance to do this one. A uh, big thank you to Jerry, his wife Terry, and really, it was a wonderful afternoon here in the Open Trailer Podcast studios. Next time out, it's a triple threat. They are, when it comes to racing in the state of Maine, they are royalty. Three generations of Babs, Bob, Bobby, and Brad Bab all at once for two stages next time out on Open Trailer Podcast. Whose idea was it for the wood chopper number four? Joe Tufts, I guess. And who's he? The guy that loves his cows. He used to be. So you brought it down to his professional shop yep. and said, you know, do this to my race car, and he came back with the wooden four. Yeah. So he had the foresight to do that. Yep. I think that's pretty iconic. Yep. My name's Andy Austin. Talk to you next time. Yep.